I can start with the deck as uh, as well as the uh, game. Not much I can say about the arc, and we should also talk about uh, trust. Yeah, I was going to say, whatever we can say about the arc, which is probably not much other than that we're participating, but whatever we can That's say, true. we should. Exactly. Yeah, we can uh, uh, point point out the uh, the quotes that we've seen, and uh, also, uh, well, we can start there. Uh, let, let's start with the arc. So, uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, FPV uh, Freedom Coalition was selected by the FAA to participate. And let's see if I can do this without uh, the abbreviations. Uh, <laughs> we were selected to participate in the Aviation Rulemaking Committee for Beyond Visual Line of Sight for UAS. And the as quoted by uh, Administrator Dixon right after remote ID, this is the next most important rule to get out the door. And so the, the timing, uh, there is a... Uh, uh, a cone of silence on uh, on the on the work that we're doing, and everyone is uh, participating is asked not to say anything uh, to anyone who is not a member or a an alternate member. And uh, I'm the member. Dan uh, is the alternate member. So we will be participating in meetings, writing, and making essentially recommendations to the FAA about beyond visual line of sight. I really um, wish that we could and, make everything public and like interact with our community and get feedback and actually represent you know the whole community but that's not how the faa works not how it works i i agree and you know to me um and, and in management uh, transparent management is the most effective and the most powerful and i would assert that transparent governance is uh, the most effective and the most powerful but that's not uh, what we're doing what we uh, can do is we can ask questions uh, and we, uh, so as we get assigned to tasks, we can uh, ask people, we can uh, get gather data, and so we can gather uh, additional community input that way. We can also pull in subject matter experts uh, through the, uh, the effort. Uh, the timing on this, uh, and I'm pretty sure it was, so that was publicly announced as well. I think it as was. That the objective is, is to have the report uh, from the, the ARC, the Aviation Rulemaking Committee complete by November of this year. And so that's quick. Uh, and there are uh, 990 organizations that were included. Um, so that's uh, available um, uh, online. Uh, the list of uh, who all is in, uh, included. And from a recreational perspective, I think it's just us. Uh, so uh, no no other uh, no retailers no associations that uh, purely represent um, uh, recreational uh, happily uh, Kenji Sukahara our colleague in uh, uh, drone service uh, provider Alliance is also uh, on and so we have an, an and in fact we have thrown from the 90. Uh, we know probably half of uh, the, uh, the people participating and the companies participating, and that's through the seven uh, DACs or drone advisory uh, committees that uh, uh, that we've participated in. Josh, greetings. Hello. We we're just starting. We start figured we'd start on the DAC and yeah. or the uh, the the ARC and the, and DAC and trust and. And uh, one of the interesting things in the ARC is they're trying not to use acronyms and abbreviations. 
And so that, you know, in, uh, in aviation, that's pretty funny. So uh, it's, uh, it, it's a positive thing, but it is amusing to watch. So uh, a number of companies have uh, made significant announcements uh, that they are participating uh, in the ARC and uh, made a big deal out of it with announcements. And I think that's entirely appropriate. Uh, we're we're proud to be uh, to have been asked, and uh, I think our uh, our participation in the deck sh shows that uh, we're serious, we're positive, we can be productive, and uh, that's what we'll be uh, for the arc. So it's a uh, uh, it is uh, important to us, um, and uh, we we'll be pushing uh, the role of uh, uh, reg uh, recreational, educational uh, research uh, as uh, areas that are. Uh, not dead center aligned with the commercial. And I think you mentioned um, this already, but yeah, it's an invite only uh, meeting. So we were surprised, well, not really surprised, but very happy to be one of those 90 groups that was directly invited by the FAA. Clearly shows that yeah, well, we've been working well, with them. They're thinking of us. They know who we are. They invited us to this arc. We're definitely vastly outnumbered on the ARC by commercial interest, but well, fight as hard as we can for our interests anyway. Are we always outnumbered? <laughs> always outnumbered. Well, except for in we, you know, actual pilots. Right, right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I've made that point already a couple of times, but uh, that, that's, uh, I, you're right. Well said, Dan. Uh, I'm very proud that, uh, that we as an organization were. Uh, invited. Uh, it, it is a big deal, and it uh, we will be able to continue to help shape uh, the regulations in, the, in UAS because of uh, the work we've done and uh, because of this session. Uh, so anything else? Yes, sir. Um, since the notice or the listing showing the members said that there's a chance that they may rearrange some of that, has there been any indication that they might be adding or taking some members off. Um, they added uh, one one comp or one association that I've seen. Um, I, I did add up. Um, I think they're going to. There's going to be uh, some attrition, but I have uh, because uh, the workload is going to be significant. Uh, so I, I think we'll see uh, that uh, happen naturally. Uh, over the next couple of weeks, but it's not the you know, trend has not been obvious uh, in early days. I assume you can mention like just how many hours of work it's already been in meetings in the past week, right? <laughs> that shouldn't be private yeah, information, but it's a lot. No, it's yeah, it's already been. Uh, let's see, it's twenty twenty hours. Twenty already. hours. Yeah. In one week, yeah, just yeah. meetings and meetings and meetings, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad oh, we have good. a retired person on our team <laughs> who can attend 20 hours of meetings in a week. Because uh, somebody uh, working full time wouldn't be able to do that. I was thinking about that. I, I was um, uh, when I uh, I work for a living. Um, there is absolutely no way I could participate in this. I'd have to decline. And uh, of course, we did have people working in standards uh, organizations, but the uh, our uh, corporate um mentality was that no oh, this is a this is a good thing right this is really cool you get to work with this group oh yeah yeah th this is helping us oh yeah so you know 
you're you can continue your full-time job right there's uh you don't need any uh, time <laughs> off or any uh yeah any dispensation for this right the way we ran it so there's just no way that i could have yeah it definitely shows how it, the other people some of them on the arc are being paid by their day job to be there and obviously mm -hmm. they're going to have to justify to their company why they're there and try to steer the arc into making sure their company looks good or gets profits from it in some way or another mm -hmm. right and interestingly the arc has a lot of uh, government um, uh, representative people uh, on board uh, whereas ASTM has a lot of um, uh, engineering and development management and so it's amazing the uh, uh, that the uh, ASTM is able to pull people I mean it's it's not 20 hours a week, it's maybe two or three hours a week per working group, but that's a big price. Uh, I, I, don't, I could not afford two to three hours a week uh, when I was working. That, that would have been too much. And I, it would, if I wasn't you know, driving a program or product uh, or revenue directly, couldn't mm -hmm. have done it. So it's my hats off to those people who are making the time because they're obviously uh, working late to, uh, to compensate. So TextJet has a good question. Will the ARC uh, results be made public in November? Not necessarily. Great question. So precedent is that the at the when the ARC results are presented to the FAA, precedent is that they are made uh, made public. But it is um, it's not necessarily the case. So because the ARC is a unique body granted by uh, by the government, by Congress, to the for the FAA to do this. It is not a FACA, so the minutes and notes uh, do not have to be uh, distributed publicly. As I said, you know, it's, certainly it's our hope that the uh, the results are made public, and that would, of course, uh, position us well to be able to point to. Uh, an ARC document, just as we did with a remote ID uh, ARC when we were when we were commenting on the NPRM. Very useful to have uh, a, a pretty heavy weight and capable, you know, a document written by a lot of people. Uh, with these are the requirements that we would place on the FAA. So, good news is we'll have that in our minds if uh, we'll we won't have copies of it. <clears throat> Anything else on the ARC? TechJets is typing at the moment. Let's see what he okay. has. All right, while he's typing, I'm going to. You mind if I jump in here, Dave? Oh, please. Oh, actually, here's his question What regulations will be affected by ARC recommendations? That's a good question. Um, the answer is. Um, it's not, you know, we're not sure yet. Um, certainly beyond visual line of sight, you know, that's stating the obvious, but right. um, we're not sure. And uh, and I can't go into it. So, you know, just keep in mind that around the arc, and I'm sure Dave, you covered this, but I'll reiterate, There's there's usually like a, uh, essentially a, a non-disclosure uh, relating to the content that's covered in the meeting. So 
while we can say that the meetings are happening and they're making progress, you know, we can't really, uh, Dave can't really talk about specifics in terms of that kind of stuff. So the information is relatively embargoed um, in terms of, you know, all that. So hopefully, you know, they'll release the, the, um, the documents within, you know, once the arc is wrapped up and uh, we can see what, uh, you know, how they're going to utilize that information in terms of future regulations. But um, as far as right now, yeah, we're, uh, we're kind of stuck in, in not being able to talk about it. So, um, all right. So I'm going to jump in. I've got some, a couple interesting things here. So uh, let me get my screen shared here. I believe it's this one. Does it say it's pause? Uh-oh. Does that break stuff? Minimize the application. <laughs> okay, go away. This stream, this stream has ended. Okay, share my screen. Applications, screens. There we go. Let's do this. Go live. Hey, there we go. Hey, we got it. All right. Technology has not defeated me yet. <laughs> All right, so uh, first up is uh, sky, uh, Cellular Connected Drones and Skyward. So uh, for those who are not super familiar with Skyward, Skyward is a division of Verizon. Um, they uh, originally started in 2012 and then they, uh, as an independent company, and then they were purchased by uh, Verizon and, in 2017. Um, or they were acquired, I should say. Um, and uh, currently, they are uh, equipping uh, UAS with cellular, uh, which we kind of knew was going to happen. Um, and in terms of being able to test it for future projects, including uh, beyond visual line of sight, uh, they say universal traffic management. I, I believe it's unmanned traffic management, but you know, I could be wrong on that. Um, yeah, right now. And uh, so uh, those those cellular and this is one of the things we kind of uh, uh, kind of rallied against in terms of remote ID and having to having the requirement of uh, always connected uh, UAS. So there are areas of the country while significant portions of the country are covered by cellular network, um, not all are. And especially in remote areas um, or. Uh, a lot of, you know, uh, underdeveloped communities or, you know, rural communities where they don't have the same coverage as they would, say, here in Phoenix or in New York or Minneapolis. So um, these are the uh, so we kind of push it back against that. And uh, throughout the remote ID, um, actual rules dropping and regulations dropping, uh, we won that fight. Um not just we, but, you know, the entire UAS community who commented the 53,000 comments. So, um, but obviously they have left placeholders uh, and, and areas where this could be dropped in um, during the next set of regulations or at the next reauthorization. So um, Skyward has been testing this um, and they say, uh, 
Let's see. Cellular connected drones play a critical role in enabling tomorrow's safe, reliable, and secure drone operations. Uh, this comes from Matt uh, Finelli, the director of strategy and operations at Skyward. Uh, we're thrilled to be laying this foundation with the FAA and are confident that our efforts will help inform technical standards from which industry regulations uh, authorizing low risk beyond visual line of sight and one too many operations will flow. Um, so they are basically uh, developing a MOA uh, that will allow them to um, work with this, um, with the FAA over cellular communication and uh kind of develop that uh, scenario there. So just a FYI on that. And I am sorry, let me drop some links in the yeah, chat. I think, so. I think you picked up exactly on the key point on that is that there's so many um, organizations and companies. There's Google, there's, uh, you know, this article cites uh, Verizon Skyward. Uh, there's AT&T, uh, there's uh, AWS, all interested in uh, getting network uh, as a requirement for remote ID. And with that, as uh, was cl so clear by the FAA, that remote ID is not detect and avoid. That's where some of these uh, these folks are trying to take it, as that network allows uh, an easier push to uh, uh, to incorporate a, a detect and, and avoid capability mm -hmm, in, the, in, in the UAS. Yeah, so, you know, that's, that's, you know, kind of the hang up with remote ID right now in terms of, I'm sure, a lot of these organizations and companies um in terms of being able to manage their traffic versus you know recreational traffic or even small business you know commercial traffic um in terms of drone deliveries and and whatnot that they may want to uh kind of roll out so when we're just broadcasting via you know radio in, in terms of the remote id broadcast modules you know they can't track our stuff as efficiently as if it was connected to the entire system so um, we, we always knew that was going to be the rub. Um, and uh, I think for the immediate future and hopefully many years to come, we've, we've kind of uh, dropped that uh, requirement for, for a while and, and gained a reprieve. But uh, just FYI, it, it's being looked at and researched and developed. So uh, speaking of Google, Dave, uh, this is Wing, uh, a division of Google. Um, they have dropped their free airspace authorization app. So um, this is uh, so it says Alphabet's uh, delivery subsidy uh, subsidiary Wing has launched a free mobile and web app called Open Sky to inform drone pilots, both recreational and commercial, when and where it's safe to fly in the United States. Drone flyers can use the Open Sky app to see information on airspace restrictions, pre-planned flights, and gain airspace approval. It's been in use in Australia since 2019. So this is going to be very similar to uh, Kitty Hawk. Um, I have not downloaded this yet. I was uh, going to earlier this afternoon, and then I had to run some errands. But um, it seems very much uh, the same thing as, as some of the other ones out there, like Kitty Hawk. and uh, Kitty Hawk? What's uh, that? That doesn't exist anymore. Oh, I forgot. What's a it? Lot. A lot. Yes. Yeah. That's going to take so a long time. To, a, a, yeah. <laughs> That's going to take me a, a pretty, while. Pretty, pretty awesome. The app on your phone updated itself to change its name. I was very impressed. I didn't even realize that. But Now you can't find it because you search for Kitty Hawk and it's not there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kitty Hawk is a drone company on the West Coast. So, they make hardware. Uh, yeah. Mm. 
So um, just from the images here, it looks like you've got uh, your no-fly zones, your your caution zones. It's got your um, areas. Uh, there you go. Alex is demoing it for us. Um, I was going to say, has anybody your... tried it yet and compared it to the others? Have you given it a run-through, Alex? What do you think? I just downloaded it on my oh, phone well, right now. Oh, well, jeez. Tell us if it, yeah, I'm... I, a I lot of I'm in a 56-mile of... radius of uh, uncontrolled airspace, so. <laughs> All right, so uh, I'm going to pop on the video real quick and see what we've got here. So it looks like it's just doing what Alex did, just flying <laughs> through the, the different things. You can plan your flights. Uh, you got your details and uh, probably like everything else while I was short. Um, instant notification, yeah, what you One got? thing I noticed right away is uh, it says daytime operations. Flights are only allowed during daylight hours, even though recreationally that's incorrect. As well as, as, well as one. And commercially now. So, well, the question the is, is I, I don't think, have they, Dan, you use Lance more than I do. So um, have they corrected it where you can gain airspace approvals after dark yet through any of the well, apps? Well, I don't think you can do that with Lance in controlled airspace. I don't think you can get approval. Okay, it's so... Al it's always correct. You meant <laughs> yeah, update, <right>. updated. <laughs> so, interesting yeah. question here in the article is why is Wing investing in an operator app? Um, they said with uh, nearly 2 million registered drones in the U.S. already, regulatory compliance of all drones will allow them to share the sky safely. Moreover, compliance will ultimately expand the uses and benefits of drone. Among them, emergency response, commercial inspections, and contactless deliveries to more people. Um, and it says, as a champion of an open airspace system, Wing hopes to encourage a stream of innovations that will support diversity, attract users, and grow the U.S. drone industry. The Open Sky app is one of the many tools drone pilots can use to participate in airspace. I try um, hard not not to be cynical, but I mean, this is like, why do you rob banks? That's where the money is. <laughs> why, why do they? Why why is Google creating the the glue and the uh, the software platform that we're going to operate our drones with? That's where the money is. Not only that, I think that, you know, companies like Google and, you know, companies that they support, they can sell that API, let's say, you know, as an example, and I, I'm sure Amazon will do their own thing, but I'm going to use them as an example. Google pays or Amazon pays Google to get a hold of the data from the Open Sky API so that they can plan their flights around all the people who are using that. Um, right. so it's like a miniature, like a, a, um, almost like a, just a, a microcosm UTM in terms of that exactly. specific app. Exactly. They, they want to be a USS and they want to sell the base software to other companies to not only be USSs, let's say USS is a, a nested abbreviation. So it's a UTM service supplier. Mm -hmm. They also want to provide from order entry to delivery and so you provide the drones and use their software and place an order the drone knows where to go it creates a flight path that gets the authorization the delivery is made the inventory is updated back at the factory and so you know that's where uh, and i'm not making this up this is from <laughs> a, a google wing video of this is what we're doing and, mm -hmm. and so they're they're already at over ten thousand flights so they're 
they're rocking and rolling on this. And also and, keep in mind is is organizations like Google um, or Facebook or Twitter. The only reason their apps are free is because they are you know harvesting your data. So right. the more data they have, the more that they can either a sell that data to somebody else, a third party, or b utilize that data to further their own business. And I'm not right. saying that that Wing is doing anything bad here. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, it's things are free for a reason and things aren't really always free. So, um, like I said, there's definitely um, it's great to have another, you know, app out there that can be utilized. Um, But at the same time, you know, pick what works best for you. If it's a loft. Hey, I didn't say Kitty Hawk. (laughs) If it's a loft or if it's open sky or if it's UAS sidekick or whichever you're going to use um they're all they all serve the same purpose it's whatever works best for you kitty hawk or hey aloft in the past i felt was a little uh not the best interface for me in terms of there's a lot of information that you would have to put in on various different screens before you could get everything to work correctly but you know and and who knows maybe open sky is a little more user friendly if there's one thing that, that that google and or alphabet altogether is good at its its ux its user interfaces i think aloft has improved their user interface a little bit they've they've made it easier and easier at least for Mm -hmm. when i've used it and just going back on that topic if i try to request a flight in my backyard right now it says nope you can't do that it's not available for night operations so after going through using the app a little bit uh it looks like 107, it's asking for the registration number of the aircraft you're going to use. So mm-hmm. only make sure you're flying one aircraft for what it is if you're flying under 107. But I believe I thought on Kitty Hawk that you didn't have to do that to put the registration number. But it asked for all that and then asked for the type of aircraft you're flying and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, But the user interface is a little bit better, however... One thing it doesn't look like it shows you is the weather, which was nice on the kitty at on aloft. <laughs> yeah, that so, is nice. The weather and some of that those um, things. I don't know why, but I at first I didn't realize that it was going to have me log into my Google account, but I should have expected that. <laughs> Make gotta sense. connect I, all the data together, Alex. Yeah. All of it got to come I didn't, together. I, <laughs> I didn't think of it when I first opened it up, but it made sense as I went through it. All of your Google searches are going to have drone-related ads from now on. They already do. <laughs> That's hilarious. Not new. Now they'll even all know right. which what part 107 drone you're flying and what the parts are. So I'm going to use their app. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this comes from the ARRL, which is the Amateur Radio Relay League. Yes, so um, not great news if you're Hobby King. Um, so a while back, back in 2017, there was a complaint from the ARRL uh, regarding uh, some of the equipment uh, that they were marketing and selling as being blatantly illegal, and I remember this. Um, so essentially this had to do with their 1.3 gigahertz, uh, modules and that they were, uh, the transmitters, these were VTXs, um, 
the transmitters were dip switch selectable for frequencies that were internationally assigned for use by air, aeronautical navigation, GPS, GLONASS, uh, ATC, um, as well as both the, in, uh, the interrogation and reply frequencies for air traffic control, air route surveillance, transponder radar systems. Um, transmissions from these drone TV transmitters uh, would have caused harmful interference to these essential navigation ATC radar systems. So this ended up in court back back then, and they Hobby King was fined, I believe it says in here, almost $3 million, $2.8 million. Right. Um, so this went back into, uh, the, obviously, Hobby King appealed the decision, and that appeal was declined. Um okay. Could you drop the link over in the... Oh, yes, course? absolutely. I'm sorry. Yeah, this, um, is, this, this is real. And so this this is about VTXs. And so it's uh, if you purchased a VTX in Europe and then brought it over to the United States and started using it, or if in 2016, if you, uh, uh, you, you purchased a VTX, you could turn it on. You know, this article does say via dip switch, but of course we know you could do it via software. And uh, you would be transmitting on navigation and emergency frequencies. And that's you know, so granted where we transmit only up to one watt, but that uh, that's plenty of power when you think that ham radio can operate on milliwatt ranges and get hundreds and thousands of miles away. So you'd definitely be disturbing. And the, and the FCC... Uh, the, the parties accountable are the manufacturer, the retailer, and the operator. So this this is one to uh, to continue. And all of the uh, uh, the retailers have gotten extremely savvy about this. Uh, they they will not sell a VTX to us in the United States if it transmits uh, on these frequencies. Yeah, and I mean, Get FPV went through this a while back as well, and uh, um, it was a pretty hard hit for them as well, I believe. But that's that's correct. Um, but uh, yeah, so essentially, their appeal got declined, um, and so they have an obligation to pay the fine. So um, hopefully, you know, Hobby King is. Uh, I'm. Sure, I mean, they're they're pretty big, but at the same time, I hope they can absorb that and they'll still be around because I know a lot of people depend on them. And so, yeah, it's a um, big fine. Yeah. So, um, all right. So as we all know, and we've been talking about this for a long time, the trust test is up and the, um, the recreational UAS, uh, help me out here. Safety. Let's see. Safety test. test. Safety Thank test. you. So if, it, yes. if you say, if you say trust test, it's like, <laughs> It's redundant. Make sure you say the, <laughs> the trust test. Or if you say the, yes, the trust the test, trust. then it's the, the, the trust test yeah. test. So trust is live. Um, so obviously we were, uh, originally we were part of uh, the trust um, kind of development. And uh, we, our concern as an organization was that the, the test would be too costly, too hard to, hard for pilots to pass the exam, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So Afraid you'd our, have our... to sign up with some other company to get to it. Yeah. Right. So our, our, 
our original purpose was to obviously ensure that it was low cost or free, um, that it was easy to pass the test in terms of, you know, providing knowledge and, and beforehand so that it could be a one and done 15 minute kind of deal. Um, and going through that. Now, once we, we did go through the process, it was a little bit of a bear and Dan, uh, took the brunt of that, a lot of the brunt of that. And, we decided once we understood that it was going to be free, it was going to be readily available, um, it was going to be easy, it wasn't going to create a burden or a, a barrier to the hobby. We kind of just let off of it and allowed um, several other companies to uh, kind of go with that. So the test is very easy. In fact, it's impossible to not pass it. Um, the only way to not the, pass is to give up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it's a lifetime as of right now, it is a lifetime test, so you don't have to retake it every three years like you do for part 107. Um, and the information, you know, a lot of it may be review, and it's basically just to inform you of what the regulations are, how, you know, the safe way to fly and do all that stuff. It's not meant to be burdensome. It's not meant to do anything. In fact, um, I saw a couple comments and it might be this article where they talked about instead of it being named a test, just call it a training. Yeah, um, it's not really a test. So uh, Congress mandated a test. Yeah. So we're calling it a test and exactly, but it truly is training. And, um, so we have, uh, there are several, you know, different partners out there who are uh, running it. We have posted a link on our site to the Pilot Institute. Um, they're, they're one of our friends, and uh, we did post a link to head over to there. Now, a uh, little plug for the Pilot Institute. They do offer paid 107 training and uh, different types of training for different uh, applications. And ground school. Yep, and ground school. So, um, obviously... They wanted to to be in this to both support the hobby as well as draw people into maybe some of their other programs and more power to them. They're a great organization. So, um, and there's a good endorsement from TextJet, and I mean, it's not an endorsement. You know, a, took the uh, test, a, took 15 minutes. Yeah, 15 minutes. Thank, thank, thank you. In in all seriousness, and I did the same thing. Took it. Mm -hmm. It did not take a long time. Yep. So. Yeah. Yes, I did pass. <laughs> Even 100%. if some of the questions are misleading or outright wrong. Mm -hmm. Got a higher score than uh, Brendan. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, it, like I said, it's not meant to be burdensome. Uh, you do have to keep your certificate that the certificate that they give you at the end on you when you're out flying. So, you know, I would just get it laminated, throw it in your flight bag, keep it on you in case you're ever questioned. You took the you took the the trust and uh, you're set to go. So to answer uh, TextJet's question, there's a question on the test that is misleading in some ways, where it says uh, having a visual observer while wearing flying FPV uh, allows you to go beyond uh, your visual line of sight or something along those lines. And the whole point of a visual observer is so that an FPV pilot can fly beyond the FPV pilot's visual line of sight. But Which the FAA is saying, up. well, if you didn't have your glasses on, you can't go any farther than if you didn't have the FPV goggles on. So they're right, but there's such a misleading wording of the question. Mm -hmm. If you read it word for word, it basically says 
you your visual observer doesn't let you fly beyond visual line of sight, so you can't fly FPV in the the way the test is written. So, and, and I think that's what they were trying to get at TextJet is that you do need to stay within visual line of sight of the observer. You can't go beyond their visual. Well, I think it was just worded. Yeah, and it's really beyond game. your visual line of sight if you didn't have goggles on because your observer should be standing right next to you with the same right. visual line of sight. But they don't get into any of those details. They just sort of make, or just yeah. make it sound like your visual observer doesn't help you at all. So, you know, it's just little things like that that, you know, there, there may be some wording issues. And I do know that um some people are saying the trust is about uh 30 minutes you know most people i talk to seems to be like 15 20 not a big deal especially if you're coming in with uh knowledge um but if you're a first timer obviously you go buy your your drone from best buy or from target and you go out and technically you need to take the trust and i'm curious what kind of marketing uh is happening in in relation to that because you know there's drones sitting on the shelf right now since the trust came out that probably have no um documentation hey go take this so hopefully we don't see a bunch of you know petty little things um enforcement things against people who haven't taken the test just yet most of the time the faa is all about it you know uh teaching and training but at the same time you know i don't want to get I don't. I hope nobody gets caught off guard with it. So, just make sure you go take it. If you're seeing this, go take your trust. Take 15 minutes before you eat your dinner and go go knock it out. Um, so, again, it's just providing information uh, and, and regulation. So, um, I do want to go back to something I talked about. I think last week on the uh, DJI Mini. This comes from Drone DJ. Um, so this is uh, the DJI Mini SE. This was basically a version of the uh, of the Mavic Mini, who uh, essentially they were selling it for like three hundred dollars. Um, now it's not going to be sold in North America, so you can't get it. They developed it. It's basically the insides uh, from a DJI Mini with the body of a, a Mini Two. So it's it's meant it's not meant to be any kind of high performance. It has a little bit it's a little bit underpowered from what I'm reading, um, but it's meant for areas of the world who may not have the direct availability to uh, cost effective decent drones. So it's meant to kind of get out there and inspire um, maybe some underserved communities around the world. So. Uh, it is uh, not going to launch in the United States or Europe except for Russia. So, um, yeah. It says, uh, and this is according to DJI, uh, the DJI Mini SE is a specialized product tailored for entry-level drone pilots in markets where consumer drone use is emerging. It uses the internal components of the Mavic Mini, the shell of the Mini 2, which generates slightly higher wind resistance but provides much of the performance of the original Mavic Mini at an attractive price. Uh, there are currently no plans to sell this product in the U.S. or Europe, apart from Russia. The DJI Mini 2 remains our flagship entry-level drone with its superior 4K 30fps resolution up to 10-kilometer image transmission. Obviously, subject to local rules and regulations. Um, so, I uh, just wanted to correct that. Uh, I got super excited that I could get a cheap DJI Mini. 
uh, when I read that. So obviously, if that's you travel not to the happen. right country, well, you know, I might, I might just have to, you know, go uh, chance it in Russia right now. So um, this is pretty cool. I um, this is coming from the drive. And I am going to play a video. So this is the Department of Energy, um, Nevada National Security Site. Um, and this is, they basically have segregated a section out of uh, the this area for testing both UAS, counter UAS, and different types of projects like this. Um, I see a picture really, of a DJI drone there. Did they do this when they were allowed to fly DJI drones? Well, they're allowed again, right? <laughs> so, um, now this, uh, it, it actually gives the, the specific latitude and longitude. Um, but, uh, this is, uh, uh, closed. It's, uh, operated out of the closed village of Mercury, Nevada. This is the same general area where hundreds of nuclear weapons were tested during the cold war. The area all lies within a block of restricted airspace called R 4808 N, which sits inside R 4808 a also known as the box, which is the same area that area 51 sits in. So, Hey, super cool. <laughs> there are no drones there. Uh, well, you know, it's a UFO. Um, so obviously highly restricted airspace. But the cool thing about this place, and I'm going to play a video. This is called Port Gaston uh, is the place where they're doing this. Um, they essentially will allow companies uh, to schedule time to go out there and test whatever they want to test. And they don't have to interface with the FAA. Um, because this is they they this is the U.S. government. It's a restricted. I mean, the the airspace is heavily restricted, so they're allowed to use it for whatever they want, whenever they want. So they cite in the video, which I'll I'll cover here in a second, that um, to attempt to get uh, approval for any type of experiment uh, with the FAA can take upwards of four months to a year to three years just for one flight. And whereas Yikes. they can schedule time at the NNSS uh, within days. So um, not only are they able to do, um, you know, simple UAS tests and counter UAS tests, they're allowed to do directed energy tests, which would be like um, putting out, could be like a, a, a laser or a directed radio blast to knock drones out of the air for counter UAS. They also have a 16 mile one-way corridor between two areas that they can do beyond visual line of sight testing. Um, questions I was going to ask, can I do VV loss testing with my quad? You, you can. Sign up for a day. So, yeah, Josh, uh, you going to just sign up and go fly your wing really far yeah. over there? Go yeah, drive yeah, over you know, there? It might be fun. <laughs> it might be fun. So um, they uh, can do anything. It, they allow uh, extensive, extensive and agile outdoor test bed that allows for rapid validation of prototype sensors, information aggregation and analysis, and identification of requirements and flexible concepts. There's a lot of buzzwords in that sense. Um, Port Gas and personnel say the footage that they are able to accommodate um, almost any type of testing involving drones or anti-drone technologies. The site offers a rare, nearly restriction-free environment for research and development to take place in a real-world setting. 
we really we literally have the ultimate playground for national security testing. Um, you know what? So, Rotor Riot should go over there and do an episode with sure. all the flights that they're not allowed to do anywhere else. <laughs> so I'm going to play this. It's about almost a four-minute video. Can you turn it up in any way? It's really quiet on our end. Is that better? A little bit. I think we protect the nation by providing this venue for people to game against UASs. With the, the UAS, the reason that that's getting so much attention out here is because it's so important, and it is changing the economy, and it's going to prolong time. Compared to anywhere else in the United States, we provide a succinct venue. We control the airspace. We control the environment. Got your turn. You're clear. We're inside a restricted and controlled place to play. We're far enough away for other neighbors and the freeway and the communities so we can have a secure test. We own the airspace. We own it surface to infinity. However, we schedule 14,000 and below on a daily basis, which gives quite a lot of airspace for any of the customers to come in. Uh, you can only go up to 14,000 feet. To be flying. The CEO of a company that's been doing some work out here and I were talking, and it, he told me it takes about four months to get a permit to do a single experiment. Where out here, it takes a few days of coordination to do as many experiments as we want to. You do not have to interface with the FAA, which saves you four months. We're very cost effective. When it comes down to it, you get on our calendar, you can come out and do what you need to do and get your data. We can also do directed energy. The FCC regulates uh, spectrum throughout the country, but NNSS has an experimental station license issued by the FCC. And that allows us to then take, we, now we have explosives capabilities, we have flying capabilities, and we have the ability to do directed energy. We do have the capability of beyond visual line of sight, from actually Port Gaston all the way to uh, Area 25, the MX racetrack, which is 16 miles one way. We have a unique ADS-B system for tracking with a small transponder put on some of the drones to do beyond visual line of sight. So we provide ready, available assets and pilots to provide them something to train against. If somebody can come out and say, I want to do almost any type of testing in this space, then we can accommodate it. Here at Port Gasson, right across the street, is uh, ARL SWORD weather station. And we can also request a on-site weather station that can be recorded to one second for any of the customer's needs. To be able to have a private airspace, a non-FAA, corridor 16 miles long, and be able to fly high hazard within that, that, that's a dream, it really is. So we should attract some interesting customers. I know we will, we already have. And the reason they're coming here is because it's a unique location to be able to test and see these things. So they can see them operating in an austere environment like they'd really have to. It's not in a laboratory, it's out in the field, and it can be complicated testing. We have such a vast amount to offer, we can make our menu to fit the customer's needs. We literally have the ultimate playground for national security testing. If you can imagine it, we can do it. You come in, you get to do what you need to do to test out and validate your equipment. At Port Gaston, we work on national security. So pretty interesting. Uh, 
you know, it's it's definitely, you know, for those customers that they're looking for who need to test something quickly, uh, get a proof of concept, that kind of stuff to move on to the next engineering point, you know, not always a bad thing. So, um, yeah. Uh, with that, I think that's all I have. Any questions? Uh, did we have any points on the DAC? Did we, is the, was the, did we talk about No, we DAC? haven't covered we... the DAC at all yet. We okay. DAC yet. Yeah. All we right. should tell people what the DAC is first. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. The, it is a FACA. It is the FAA's um, uh, requirements body, and it's also a uh, an official um, organization and DAX stands for Drone Advisory Committee, right? Thank you. Thank you. There are about 35 members. Uh, we are not a, uh, a member of the DAC, although we have uh, applied. And you apply as an individual. So I've applied. Alex has applied. I've applied. And uh, we'll keep working at it. Uh, so the uh, at the at the DAC that uh, just happened, with June 23, is that right? Yep. And... Uh, if you search on FAA DAC, DAC, uh, you'll you there's a PDF that's 209 pages that uh, and on page uh, 162 you can see that uh, one of the groups that uh, Alex and I both participated in there were five recommendations. We're happy with these: um, voluntary ADSB in radio use by UAS operators, voluntary onboard access for low altitude aviators, voluntary notify and fly ground-based remote ID in uh network so this is from left to right uh if you're if you bring that slide up it was intended to be from easy to hard and so the in the sequence that i read read those off uh certainly on uh, voluntary adsb in only um and the whole the overall push of uh, of this tasking was how could you utilize remote id information to improve situational awareness for crewed and uncrewed, or that is unmanned aircraft, uh, at low altitudes. And so, uh, one of the one of the cool ones is radio use by UAS operators. So, uh, you may know that uh, we cannot, uh, without a very special ground station license, uh, pick up a and a a handheld radio and transmit on aviation frequencies. You can listen, but you cannot talk. And so, in uncontrolled airspace only and not in talking to air traffic control but talking to pilots uh, this would be very advantageous so it's simple it just it does not require uh, going back to the FCC it just requires uh, a change by the uh, FAA so that one we hope that they'll uh, they'll take on board and uh, make it happen um, <clears throat> voluntary onboard access for low altitude aviators that idea is to utilize uh, the data from remote ID integrated into a flight deck in man, uh, manned aircraft or crewed aircraft and thereby have um, a, an understanding of where uh, drones are uh, as you're flying. Uh, lots of uh, details in, in the write-up. Voluntary not notify and fly is one of the two things that was missing in the final rule of remote ID in our view. And so we wanted a notify and fly, but we also wanted an exemption from remote ID. And so what we've asked for here is the notify and fly. And this is an intent 
uh, and it's uh, in applications like Before You Fly or Aloft. I, next week, I'm going to fly in this volume of airspace during the, this time. Why do we care? Well, it, it's it, it's helpful if you're a company and uh, someone is going to fly near your, say, if you're AT&T and you're going to inspect cell towers. Uh, it's also, if we could get that uh, added to an exemption for remote ID, so if I say, look, I'm going to fly here at this bando, I'm going here, this is who I am, this is the volume space I'm going to fly, and this is when I'm going to fly, would like that to be uh, instead of carrying uh, the uh, equipment of uh, a remote ID broadcast module. Finally, ground-based remote ID and detection network. That's um, uh, mostly for cities, but it's uh, this is uh, far out. It's uh, a little difficult, but it's uh, this is along the lines of satisfying security requirements and how to do it. And it's one of the methods that uh, we think would be uh, less onerous. Okay, and enough uh, detail on that one. Uh, the gender-neutral language, um, which we all um, tasking, which we also participated in, uh, went all went over very well. It's been very well received. Uh, lots of press about this. Uh, we anticipate that the work that we did will be picked up uh, and carried in other agencies in the government. Yeah, and it I, seems I like they're... it's it's not just going to be for drones. It's going to be all of FAA, and they're going to push it even farther. Yeah across across different agencies yeah yes. they like blog and, posted about it as soon as the meeting was over i know um, yeah and yeah the the deputy uh administrator was on, on uh, talking about it really uh, uh very well also, i mean go ahead go ahead alex i was just going to mention it also made some national news too and this wasn't like this is the FAA's idea that we should be spending time on this. This was coming from, I think, a director from, was it the White House or something, saying that all pieces of the government should be working on gender-neutral language or coming up with figuring out where they can improve that everywhere. Right. right. Diversity, inclusivity kind of stuff. Right. Yes, it is absolutely that. And uh, I, I bought in when I read some research came out of uh, UT Austin um that said you know this is affecting kids and so and as as you read some of these research papers it, it's you know it's like it's this is way beyond political correctness this is whoo this affects little girls and one of the women who i worked with on an faa symposium said you know when i go to grade schools and i talk about drones and i bring tiny whoops with me it's 50 50 the kids girls and boys 50% girls, 50% boys show up. I come, I also do high school outreach and I bring some drones and we talk drones. It's 100% guys. Mm -hmm. So it's it's worth a read and uh, I'm I'm committed. Uh, and uh, we did have a good, uh, good uh, stake in this work. Uh, I ran two subgroups that uh, provided uh, input to the people who wrote it and the folks who wrote it, super professional. And it's a it's a good a good piece of work. In addition, we got two we have two new taskings. So tasking eleven and twelve. One is the acceptable level of risk white paper. And you look at that one and go, what? What? <laughs> what are they talking about? Well, what they're talking about is really interesting and very useful. And so I think Alex, I think you volunteered to uh, sign up for the K through 12 and possibly the white paper one time permitting and, you know, uh, job and school. 
I'll probably be only doing the K to 12 one. The uh, risk one, I don't think I'll have enough time, and I don't think that uh, they passed along my information for that one yet. Okay. Um, so the, what, what's the inappropriate level of risk? This is really important to us. The FAA is now coming back and saying, you know, maybe for small UAS, there should be a different set of categories or a different continuum of risk. You think this maybe? Way, this is, mm -hmm. <laughs> so, this is, so this is good. <laughs> So just a little yeah, background on this. Yeah. So a little bit of background on this. So before uh, all that, so far as we can tell, all risk assessment in terms of uh, like the falling drone was based on like a 1960s study of debris that could fall off a rocket that was going through space or an airplane. So a solid piece of metal. Yeah, so th think about a solid piece of metal hitting you in the head. Ow, that's going to hurt. It could possibly kill you. Now, drones are ow, going to hurt, but at the same time, the the impact of that is going to be applied differently, depending on the type of drone. So, you know, if you think about like a tiny whoop, obviously does not have enough kinetic force in terms of weight or mass and, and energy to do any kind of serious harm. Unless it's Whereas traveling at thousands some... of miles per hour, which it's not going to do. Well, you, you know, I mean, speed of light, right? Um, but at the same time, you know, a five-inch drone uh, might have a little bit more impact, and it's going to have a little bit more impact, and it's going to have more, uh, you know, ab uh, abrasive surfaces in terms of the larger blades, uh, carbon fiber. But at the same time, carbon fiber is not a piece of metal, and... Drones are essential. <clears throat> let's let's take racing drones for example, or or freestyle drones. They're meant to uh, apply force across the entire frame. So if you get hit by one, that force is going to be absorbed by the carbon fiber and reverberate through the entire frame, not apply it all at the same spot, like a piece of metal that is completely rigid and immovable. So or it's you know, like the, the, the... terminal velocity if it falls out of the sky is way lower than a cannonball of the same weight. Yes. There's a Absolutely. lot more air resistance. Also, yeah, exactly. And that's where I was going to go. But, you know, so absolutely the risk assessments need to be relooked at. They need to be updated. So this is this is great. Uh, this is going to be a really good, uh, hopefully, subgroup for us. This is going to be important. I Sorry really hope they'll, they'll be able to make <laughs> no, some of that information perfect. public. But I'm sure at yeah. first it's going to be totally embargoed. <laughs> I hope, I mean, our, so this is what's so clever about this is this is a white paper written by the FAA. So the, the FAA is, you know, they're, the FAA is not supposed to create its own requirements. So the FAA is saying, we think that the, the risk is different on the continuum for UAS than it is for manned aircraft. Well, so we're going to write a white paper about it, and then we'd like our official FACA to comment on it. So then they have industry input. So good for them for doing this. And so we're on that one. And the other one is uh, about K through 12. And it reads, uh, leverage the expanding interest in UAS operations into K through 12 curricula curriculums, should be curricula, develop the next generation of innovative Thinkers, leaders, and operators encourages investments and continued continued education in STEM-related fields. 
So the tasking is to the DAC to develop recommendations on how to integrate UAS operations into K through 12 curricula. Super, we're signed up. Uh, Alex, if he can, will join uh, that one. Uh, and I'm on, I'm on that one uh, for sure. So that will be my um, eighth and ninth uh, DAC tasking drone advisory committee tasking uh, effort. Alex, and and we'll just reiterate really quickly, yeah. we're not officially members of the DAC, but we're doing a lot of work as tasking members. Yeah, thank you, Dan. Absolutely right. So what I was going to add was with the K-12 to integration one, I'm curious to see how that's going to play out, knowing that there's already several companies already doing this. Because uh, I know Global Air Drone Academy, where I uh, do some stuff at, does that. Then there's Drone Cadets. They do that, and then there's several other companies that already do this. So there's mm -hmm. to see what that ends I, up looking I think, like. I think what we have is pockets because, like, uh, Drone Academy is is not known up here in the Northeast. Um, AOPA, Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association, so has a fan has a fantastic program called You Can Fly. They're in 200 high schools. They have ninth, tenth, eleventh, twelfth grade classes. And they're adding FPV to those classes. Yep. So that's right. one thing. Big, that's a big deal. So I, but you know, getting this together, leveraging it, endorsing it from the FAA, adding content from the FAA, any of this is good to uh, to push uh, STEM and aviation STEM uh, to, into K through 12. Hopefully they can possibly take some of the resources from the uh, CTI as well. CTI. Uh, Collegiate Training Initiative. Okay. The UA, yeah, the UAS Collegiate Training Initiative. Yep. So, uh, go ahead, Alex. I was just going to say that's what um, well, one of the other things Elena was working on. Gotcha. So a couple of, I mean, these are both great tasking groups. I think, you know, one of the key things that we've used in terms of that our views are in is that, you know, drones are a perfect STEM outlet. And this is something we've reiterated multiple times to the FAA, both, you know, through our comments on NPRMs, um, through our contact with uh, Congress people, um, and obviously in private meetings with the FAA. So um, it's great to see that coming out. Now, what I imagine will happen is, like Dave said, there's a lot of little pockets everywhere, right? So uh, there might be 200 schools over here, 50 over here, but not any really widespread adoption in terms of you know the national uh, education system. So I mean, it would be interesting to see if the FAA being uh, one regulatory body communicates effectively with the Department of Education being another regulatory body to ensure that STEM, you know, drones and STEM start to work together within within public education. I think that would be the the best outcome of all of it. That would be great. So, and, 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 I, and this, I think you could, the AOPA would jump up and down in glee with that. Mm -hmm. They described they described how to integrate uh, classes into a single high school that every high school area was unique. They had to work with the board of education. They had to work with the teachers, the teachers mm -hmm. union. They had to make sure that they across the country that they're uh, Common Core compliant. That they had 
curricula for the trainers, that they have their curricula for the kids, materials, etc. So it's non-trivial, and they've mm-hmm. done a super job. But if they were able to do it once and then mm-hmm. just deliver it, that's yeah. great. And another way that, that it would be interesting to see if they group up with the different organizations who have been successful doing it as kind of stakeholders within STEM, uh, drones and STEM, to kind of develop that curriculum. And another way to also, look at this is that the FAA doesn't really even know what's going on out there. So look at this as a way of the current K-12 through setups teaching the FAA what does exist already. Um, as we've seen, absolutely. the FAA, at least some of the people at the FAA, have no idea what things are already happening out there with drones. Yeah. yeah, they they don't have an idea, but they're also open-minded and interested in listening, and they can and help hope, turn it around and affect change. Hopefully, yeah. this tasking group will help go both ways for that. Yeah, one of the other things with the drones in school is I know, and uh, JRTC is adding has added some uh, uh, some drone curriculum to the courses for uh, at least Navy Junior RTC. Uh, makes perfect ah, sense. Yep. Excellent. Uh, excellent. I, I'd assume Air Force RTC has done the same, mm-hmm. and not sure about Army or Marines, but yeah, more than likely they also have added drones into their curriculum too. Yeah, I that's mean, one of the things that they've done. Yeah, military cool. drones right now are not just—they're uh, really not just the the big predators and and global hawks and, and whatnot that they've got right now. They are. Uh, working with, you know, small little, I mean, size of tiny whoops that they're using to do, you know, remote recon and stuff like that. So I think the more that they can integrate that at, at an early age would be even better for, for that kind of uh, use. So, um, but yeah, I, I, I think both these tasking groups are, are excellent. Um, I felt like the last round was kind of missing the, the big punch, but, you know, I think that at the same time, I would agree that the the gender neutral language and, and being able to draw, you know, different, you know, a diverse uh, group of people into the hobby and into, you know, uh, professions like aviation and, and whatnot yeah. it would be ideal. The last thing we want to do is put any extra barriers there to prevent people from oh, joining. Oh, absolutely not. Right. Yeah. And, and our, our estimates are what, like 97% of FPV <laughs> is, is guys? And interestingly, it's the same number for front of front of aircraft and airliners. It's about three mm-hmm. percent are women. So this is ridiculous. You know, yeah, absolutely. Whatever we can do to help that and fix it, we should do. Yep, absolutely. I agree with that. So um, I think we are well past our time. I am sorry for holding everybody up. Um, do does anybody have any questions, comments, concerns, ideas? What did we forget to talk about this week? Oh my goodness, I felt like we covered a lot. Apparently Next we covered everything. <laughs> the UFO report, didn't that come out in like last week? Hey, I'm stoked. <laughs> I haven't read it yet. Mark Gaston, here we come. Oh geez, yeah. All right. I like, so I like that they ha- I like the way that they use the word port in the middle of a desert. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> It's so it's federal. Airport. Airport. <laughs> uh, report was nine pages, not much there. All right. Well, uh, I'll, I'll still give it a look-see <laughs> just to, you know, say I read it. But 
all right so uh with that guys we'll see you in a couple of weeks uh appreciate you all being here uh and happy fourth right yeah and have a great fourth of july um be safe out there if you are flying do so safely that's all i have to say and check the tfrs okay there's one in miami the words out of my mouth yeah so too too hot to fly. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. So, but as as Josh fly. is saying, check check for mm-hmm. check for TFRs and so sports events, air shows. Yeah. Just take a look. You know, if you have uh, uh they, I, you know, we I, want I, everyone to be safe. Go I ahead, love Alex. seeing the I love seeing the fireworks uh, FPV shots. I absolutely love it. But do so legally and safely, please. Yeah. Thanks for joining us, Turtle. Uh, and. Texture, it's never too hot to fly as long as you can fly from your car with the AC on. <laughs> if it's too hot for your car's AC, then it might be too hot. There you go. Uh, well, you know, Texjet and I, we live down in the uh, areas where it's uh, a little warm. Yeah. You know, unlike you. Unlike yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, I can't fly outside of my car because the bugs will carry me away, but you guys can't fly out of your car because you'll melt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yes, indeed. Although Seattle Alex. is feeling my pain, Seattle yeah. is feeling my pain right now. So you know, I'm sharing that. I'm sharing that up north with y'all. <laughs> so it's been like 90 all week, and it's been burning hot here. Oh man! How do you guys 117, feel 117, <laughs> boy. <laughs> I'll stick to at least Maryland and maybe further north, and hopefully mm-hmm. further north later on. Yeah, yeah. I'll bring you here. So, so thank you. I missed that. So when I when I uh, went to this is you know after hours guys you don't have to don't feel like you need to stick around but um, when I was up in Canada at school I lived up in Vancouver in British Columbia and um, I uh, lived like three blocks off the beach so super super humid very moist air I came home for a break back here to phoenix literally did not make it off the uh the ramp to the plane before my lips cracked and started bleeding it was just like and then just blood (laughs) (laughs) just like what the heck happened (laughs) zombie apocalypse yeah it it was crazy It, it took it Oh, so bad. I could not wait to. It, it was weird because I loved being home, but I could not wait to get back up there so my lips would heal. Great ride north. Yeah. Okay. All right. Have a great time, guys. Uh, you know, remember be safe, fly safe, um, and get your trust out of the way. That's it. All right. Take the, take the trust. All right. Take it easy, guys. Have a good night. Good night. Thank you. Take care.